Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be at the end of the chapter. The basic argument of the book of, of Romans is that you and I need a righteousness that comes through faith apart from the law. The case is made by showing us that every one of us, without exception, we are guilty of sin and under condemnation. That we are uh, corrupted by sin and therefore enslaved. That we are shamed by sin and therefore rejected. And then God has a comprehensive answer to every aspect of, of sin's effect on us. That He takes the guilt of sin and pardons it and, and covers us in a righteousness from Christ that's received through faith and therefore we are no longer condemned. He gives us His Holy Spirit and empowers us to resist sin and to put it to death. We're no longer enslaved. And He uh, accepts us as His own children. Therefore we are not rejected. And the shame is answered. And we see that those are promises that are made over and over many times in, in very complex but thorough arguments. At the end of Romans 8, he anticipates the idea that we might get there and say, all right, yeah, but, but what about my experience? What about my suffering? What about my disappointments? What about the things that hurt? Don't they say something different than what you're saying? And so he says, I understand your doubts. And God answers those too. From Romans 8. Before we read, let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you again to open your word up for us. Uh, what we know is that if your Holy Spirit will move, uh, then your word will take root in our hearts and you will cause your church to flourish. If uh, you do not move, then uh, we will not be changed. We cannot change ourselves. And you are the great uh, Savior. So we appeal to you today. Send your spirit, cause your word to nourish and feed your people. And may we know the Lord Jesus and the greatness of his salvation. Give us faith in him and repentance of our sins. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 8, verse 31. This is God's word. What then shall we say to these things, to the grace that we've read about? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This is God's word. It is completely true, and it is utterly trustworthy. I can't remember exactly the scene. I believe it was a conference. A drama team was up doing a, a skit of sorts, and one of the members of the drama team was a character who'd been a theologian in his life, a, a prolific one, written lots and lots of books. His most recent magnum opus was a, a multi-volume set of Christian theology in which he had done something up-to-date and rich and full, scholarly and, and brilliant. He was impressed that he had gotten great reviews. At the, uh, as he was uh, about to die, it was one of his finest accomplishments uh, that he had taken pride in and enjoyed. When he dies in the middle of the skit and he, he goes to heaven, there he's welcomed into heaven as one who had been faithful, who'd fought the good fight and kept the faith. And as part of his welcome, Jesus himself was going to read his greatest work of theology. He had announced it to all. And so he had begun to think, what would it be? Would it be that section on how Athanasius had helped theology advance? Would it be that section where he interacted with Augustine's view of of soteriology. He, he was thinking all these great and grand thoughts. And he saw Jesus pull out uh, a, a sheet of lined paper, kind of wrinkled. And he looked at it and he said, what's that? And on it, he saw the scrawl of a child. What's that? And when Jesus read the lines, the man recognized his greatest piece of theology. Here's what he had written at age five. Jesus loves me. It was his greatest piece of theology. Sometimes we can get lost in the details of defining justification and sanctification. We can try to take all of these high topics, and they are good. They help us understand what it means that Jesus loves me. But at the end of the day, if I can get across just one thing this morning... I want you to hear this. If you have come to Christ in faith, Jesus loves you. And that's more profound than you might think. Here's the problem. We say that, we hear it, we even sing it. We've heard it all our lives. But, you know, life has a way of eroding our confidence in that. Life has a way to challenge it and to sort of pick it apart. Are you really sure? If God loved you, would you be hurting like you are now? If God loved you, would you have been betrayed by that friend? If God loved you, wouldn't you be doing better at work? If God loved you, wouldn't you be... Uh, able to say no to some of those temptations more than you are? Would you fail as often as you do? Would you sin like you did if God loved you? And we start to see these doubts pick away at this one most foundational principle of our theology. I want you today to hear what Paul says to make that foundation secure. To answer the doubts, Jesus loves you. He says it, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he anticipates what we might think. 
shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or to put it all in one word shall suffering shall heart ache and hardship shall pain and affliction separate us from the love of Christ. And you've got to remember who he's writing this to. He's writing this to, to Christians who lived in the city of Rome. And there in the city of Rome, the emperor Nero. And Nero discovered, not long after this book was written, that Christians were a good political target. They were people who were not trusted. They were called atheists. Do you know that? The Christians were called atheists because they wouldn't go to the temples and worship the pantheon of gods that everybody else worshipped because they would only worship that one God. They were practically atheists. They were easy targets because they were looked down upon. And so when something bad happened, when a fire broke out in Rome and burned a huge chunk of the city, Nero blamed it on the Christians and everybody jumped on. When the economy had a little regression, the Christians could be blamed and Nero took no qualm in blaming the Christians. In fact, he took many of the Christians and sent them to the arena where they would go unarmed against gladiators or unarmed against wild beasts for the sport of seeing them die. Nero's, one of his most famous moments of interacting with Christians is he took Christians and he hung them on a pike, on a large stick, and he covered them in tar and he set them on fire to be streetlights. Shall sword and persecution and distress and suffering separate you from the love of God? Does that mean God doesn't love you, Christians of Rome? Let's put a little more contemporary. What happens when you lose a job, when you can't pay a bill, when your relationships feel stress or even break apart? What happens when you have heartache, when you get the news, you're sick? Does that mean God doesn't love you? Now I want you to hear what Paul says. Uh, he actually appeals to a psalm, verse 36. As it is written, what was written in Psalm 44, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This, this is a thousand years old when Paul wrote it. It's three thousand years old now. And so what this psalmist is saying, the experience of God's people for three thousand years, there have been those who felt like this. All day long we are being led to the slaughter. All day long we are suffering for your sake. All day long. We are under the gun and suffering. Does this mean that God doesn't love us? Let's put it into now our culture today. I would guess that as you look around, most of you feel like the privileged place that Christianity has had in American culture is beginning to erode. It's beginning to fall away. And it might make you a little nervous. We start to see a secular agenda taking the, the prime place in politics and in the media. We, we feel like the, the place of power and influence is gone. I saw a comic strip this week uh, where it, it imagined a man 
having a conversation with Jesus and he was lamenting the fact that all of these privileges and, and, and good things that Christianity used to be able to do that can't do anymore. And he said, when? When did it happen that Christianity became kind of persona non grata in the eyes of the culture? When did that happen? And Jesus' answer was 33 A.D. It's been that way. This isn't new. Does it now mean that God doesn't love us? His answer is, verse 37, no. No. In fact, in all of this suffering, you are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Here's what that means. These things will not be able to separate you from the love of God. You will hold on to the love of God. Really, let's put this in a, a practical sense. What he's saying is, if you must endure these sufferings in this life, if you must go through hardship or suffering of all sorts, no matter what it is, he is saying the love of God is better than this. It will conquer. The love of God is better than whatever you had to give up. And you know how this works. You often say, I could have one thing, but I want something better, and, I, and so I'm willing to give it up. Paul's saying, we would love to have comfort. But I can give that up if I get the love of God. It's so much better. I'll take whatever pain I must endure. Here's how this works in, in your ordinary life. Let's say you have a high school reunion coming up and you want to get in that old outfit and you go, i got to lose about 15 pounds to get there. You look at the meals you normally eat and you say, well, I really want this much, but I'll shrink my portions so that I can lose a weight. Or, I really want to have the snacks at that party my friend's throwing, but I won't because I'm thinking about something else. This is how we live life. I'll say, I want to buy this thing that would be fun to have, but I want to save my money for something better. I say no to myself, and I deny myself one thing I want for something better. Paul is saying, it does not matter what you are going through in this life. No matter how hard it is, the love of Christ it's better. It's so much better that you can endure the sword. You can endure tribulation. You can endure nakedness. You can endure danger. You can endure disappointment. You can endure weakness. You can endure affliction. You can endure all of that because at the other end is the love of God. And, and, and Paul would say it this way in Acts 20, I count my life worth nothing if I can preach the gospel. My life means nothing to me. Now, those things are true. Whether or not you're convinced by them, it is true that the love of God, when you see it clearly, will be so great that it will reach back into your life and make everything that you have endured worth it. And some of you have endured hardship a lot. Some of you have felt great pain. And so this is a big promise. God's love will reach back into your life now and it will make everything you have gone through worth it. But what if I'm not persuaded? What if right now I'm feeling some pain and 
I just want God to take it away. What if I'm afraid of what I might have to go through in the future? And, and I really just don't want God to put me through this. I look at this list and I go, I don't know. I want you to hear what he says next. Verse 38, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says this, God has set His love on you. It doesn't matter how much you recognize it. He won't let you go. He won't let the powers of hell itself who come to you and say, Really? God says His love is great? How do you know? You're in an awful lot of pain. Why don't you just let Him go? God's love is so great that He won't let that thought from the enemy overwhelm you. You'll conquer that thought because God's love holds on to you. That's why you're more than conquerors. Not because you recognize how good God's love is, but because God loves you so much that even when you don't notice, He's holding on to you. Even when you say, I really, God, I, I do want your love and all, but just take this pain away. That's what I want more than anything else. I want it more than your love right now. And if you're honest, you've thought it. If you're honest, we've all thought, I, all, the, the thing I want more than anything else in the world is for God to take this pain away. And when we say, all I want is the pain away, I'm willing to sacrifice my knowing your love for it. Just give, take it away. You see, God loves you enough to say, I will not take my love away. I won't let the powers of hell take it away. I won't let your future or your past take it away. I won't let height or depth or any created thing take away my love for you. It's my love that pursues you and holds on to you. And so it does not matter what you experience. I won't let go. It's, it's something you could say as simply as this. It really isn't how much you love God. It's how much He loves you. And that's good news. There's a, a movie. It's, uh, I'll just be honest. It's pretty pretty lousy movie but the the plot has so much promise it could have been good the movie is called what dreams may come you may have seen it robin williams plays the lead character his name is chris and uh, chris and his wife lose two children uh to tragic accident and uh, as they almost get to the point where they have dealt with their grief and their loss chris dies in a car accident and now, uh, free from his body, he's hanging around because he doesn't want to leave his wife alone. And, and he's trying to accompany her, but he, he's, he's not really there. And so he tries to communicate. But every time he does, she misreads it and misunderstands what he's accomplishing and it makes her think she's going crazy. And finally he realizes the only thing for him to do is to let go of this life and to move on. And so he moves on to his place in heaven. The theology is not great. I'll tell you hand. And there in heaven, the, the issue of what dreams may come is that his place in heaven is shaped by his dreams. Whatever he sort of dreams about what life ought to be and, and how it should be, that's what it looks like around him. And it's, you can interact with other people's dreams. It's, it's 
It's kind of a neat place where he is. And he gets word that his wife, in the, last, in the throes of deep depression over her life, commits suicide. And she brings her depression and her suffering into this afterlife which puts her in a hell of her own making. Nightmarish. If his are dreams, hers are, are nightmares. And, and, and she's so enveloped in her nightmares and her self-inwardness that she can't even recognize people around her. She's off where the others are who are like that. And Robin Williams, Chris, sees what's happened to his wife and he says, I'm going to go to her and I'm going to get her. And so he literally leaves his place where his dreams are beautiful and pleasant and goes into the, the nightmare of hell where he tracks his wife down and tries to persuade her to leave with him. But she can't even recognize him. She's so caught by her depression, by her pain, that nothing can penetrate it. And finally he says some words that remind her that just happened to squeeze through the crack, I guess, of her depression and of her pain, of his love for her. And immediately she comes out. And they head off from hell to heaven together. Theology in this one's not great, but there are hints of such beauty. Because see, that's your story. That in your sin and your rebellion and in your slavery, you had committed yourself to eternity of hell and all the nightmares that accompany it. And you were completely enslaved to it until Jesus himself went to hell to get you, which is what he accomplished on the cross. He bore hell so that he could bring you out into his love, which will never end. Which will never end. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus who loved us with a dying love. A steadfast love that will endure forever, but one that would die for us. And if He has died, then the love we have in Him now, we will have forever and ever. Give us the courage and the faith to believe we are loved by God. And help us to see everything that happens in our life through that lens rather than the other way around, to see your love through the lens of our suffering. We want to see our suffering through the lens of your love and to say, it is so good, it will be worth it. We love Christ because he loved us first. And we are safe in him, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we prepare to rehearse the love of God...